Good morning, 1548 Heights members and friends in person and online. Grace and peace to you in abundance. At 1548 Heights, our mission is to be a transforming church, changing lives for God and for good in the world as God transforms us into the image of Jesus. And it is good to be here. As Alan said in the welcome, it's a beautiful day in Houston, Texas, and one of the reasons it's a beautiful day is because later this week, we're going to have a big temperature drop. Uh, I'm telling you, as Gerald Ford said, when Richard Nixon resigned and flew across the country as the ex-president, our long national nightmare is over. <laughs> Houston, our, our nightmare of a summer is almost over, and so we rejoice in that. As Alan also said, uh, David Fleer, uh, who will begin in early November as our interim preacher and consultant to help us in our transition to the next full-time preacher, is here today, and we welcome him. You know, I had one of these aha moments when I was preparing the message this week. I kind of sat up and I went, oh my goodness, David's going to be here. And I don't know if you knew this, but about 20 years ago in my doctor of ministry program, David was my preaching professor. And at the end of class, he encouraged me, maybe even begged me, maybe even with tears in his eyes, uh, pleaded with me to completely overhaul my preaching lest I continue to inflict it on the local church. And I didn't. I didn't do anything. And uh, I thought, oh, my goodness, he's going to notice. I didn't, I didn't improve at all. And, and then I thought, no, he's gotten so old, he won't remember that anyway. <laughs> because, you know, memory is uh, one of the first things to go. Right, Richard? <laughs> Richard, my name's Matthew. This is the church at 1548 Heights. Okay, good, good, good. Well, we are continuing our series called Encountering Jesus. And as I always try to do, remind you of just who I'm using as conversation partners. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book called Confronting Jesus, Nine Encounters with the Hero of the Gospels. And so we're, I'm sort of working with that as well as other materials in this series. And we've talked about encountering Jesus, the teacher, the healer, the missionary. And today we're going to talk about Jesus, the lover. We're going to talk about love. So we're going to read Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 20 uh, to begin. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your, your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Thanks be to God for his word and for his living word, Jesus Christ. I want to just set the table a little bit before we dive into the particulars. There is a message outline that is in your bulletin. If you find that helpful to follow along and fill in some blanks and kind of track the message, I encourage you to take that out. But here's, here's how I would basically frame what we're going to talk about today. God created us in love for love. God created us in love for love. 
Here's a picture I've shown you often, a sort of rendition of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in an eternal, uh, mutually giving and sustaining relationship. Uh, self-sufficient in God's self. It's a, it's a mystery, but it's, it's central to the Christian understanding of God. And why would they cr- create the world? Why would they create humanity? To share that love. To share that love. There is no other agenda except to create us as an expression of, of God's love. And so we are created in love. I've talked about Henry Blackaby and Claude King's uh, seven realities of experiencing God. The first one is God is always at work around us. The second one is God pursues a continuing love relationship with us that is real and personal. God creates us in love, in his image. That's an expression of God's love. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, he says to Israel. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's uh, love for us is not responsive. It is God takes the initiative. In this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. First, or John 3 16, for God so tolerated the world. No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What are the two primary commands? Love God and love your neighbor. The great chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 on love. These three gifts remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Friends, God created us in love for love to live as expressions of that love. Now, second, to help frame our conversation today, don't you love how preachers call this a conversation? Do any of you feel like you have anything to say in this? (laughs) I like to have conversations with Angela where I talk and she listens, you know? But we all deeply long to be known and loved. Why? We're created this way. We're created in love and for love. I was listening to a podcast recently, and Vivek Murthy Murthy is a uh, former Surgeon General under President Obama, and then had a four-year interim uh, during President Trump, and then was re-nominated and approved to be the Surgeon General under President Biden. And in that four years, he wrote a book called Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely world. And isn't it significant that the Surgeon General of the United States considers loneliness to be a health epidemic, an epidemic. You may have heard just murmurings of this. It is a a real malady in our society. So many people are lonely because they are created, they hunger to be known and loved. He, he equates this in terms of the, the, uh, the loss of life expectancy. Are you ready for this? With, same as obesity and smoking. You, you can reduce your life expectancy to the same degree without life-giving relationships, without being 
known and loved. Consider Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Famous psychologist, we learned this in Psychology 101. You know, the first is a need for food, water, safety, shelter, primal. Uh, excuse me, not safety. The second is a need for safety, to feel like we, we, we're not going to be attacked and harmed. The third is love and belonging. Love and belonging. Farther up the scale, less urgent, all these things we focus on, self-actualization, accomplishments, success, uh, nice things. But deep down, what we long for is to be known and loved. Read with me 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 through 13. I've always been so intrigued by this. Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul says, we have been fully known by God. He created us in love, for love, and we have a deep longing to be known and loved. McLaughlin says in her book, the longing to be known and loved lies deep within us all, but Jesus is the only one who can deeply fulfill that need. He knows every hair on our head, every fear in our heart, every word and every action, good and evil, cruel and kind. He knows the things we wish others would see and the things we're desperate that they not see. He knows it all, and despite it all, he loves you so much he came to die for you, not just in people in general, but for you. I don't know your name, but Jesus does. I don't know your hopes, your fears, your hurts, your dreams, but Jesus does. And so with that, let's talk about three of our most powerful experiences of love that Jesus identifies himself with, okay? This is not an exhaustive list. Uh, there's a sense in which all our experiences of love are reflective of the triune God's love for us and of Jesus' love for us. But the first is what we read of in, in Mark, and that is the love of a bridegroom, the love of a bridegroom. We could call that romantic love. This is by far the most pronounced uh, image in, in the New Testament about Jesus' love as bridegroom. The church is the bride of Christ. Let me say that again. <laughs> you are the object of Jesus' desire, okay? You know, I'm not going to wax uh, eloquent about uh, seeing Angela come down the aisle as a beautiful bride. Uh, frankly, I needed glasses at the time, and I didn't have them, and I was squinting, and everybody thought I was angry. But that's a whole other story. I mean, you are the object of Jesus' desire. And read with me Revelation 19, verse 7, describing the end of the story. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lamb is Jesus, and his bride has made herself ready. Isn't it significant that in John chapter 2, many of us are familiar with this story, Jesus attends a wedding in Cana. 
And if you know the story, they run out of wine, and Jesus' mother, Mary, says, well, they're out of wine. You, you want to do your thing? And he says, not yet, not yet. And uh, eventually he turns water into wine so the guests will have enough wine. And commentators have speculated, why would John cite this miracle? Because John says this was the first of the signs that Jesus gave. There are seven signs, miracles in John. And why? There's no healing so what is so special about this? But think about it. Whose responsibility is it? The wine at the wedding. It is the bridegroom's. It is the bridegroom's. And so by Jesus uh, replenishing the wine, he's sending a, a message. Yes, I'm the bridegroom. Why would this matter so much? Because this image of Israel as God's bride proliferates the narrative of the Old Testament, and, and Jews would be immediately familiar with it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel all talk about Israel as uh, the spouse, the bride of God. Isn't it significant that perhaps the most, uh, the primary adjective used to describe God in the Old Testament, chesed, Steadfast love, covenant love, the one who loves steadfastly in covenant. It's almost not exclusively, but a marital word, a covenant word. And so Jesus shows us his love as a bridegroom desiring his bride. Second, as a friend, as a friend, we might call this the platonic love that Jesus uh, exemplifies for us. As we sang earlier, uh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Isn't it significant that as highly as Jesus speaks of marriage, <laughs> he speaks as high or higher of friendship love. John 15, verse 12 through 13, read with me. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if or when you do what I command you. No one, no higher love than this than laying down one's life for one's friends. Jesus is called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Isn't that interesting? A friend. Over and over in John's gospel in particular, we hear about Jesus' love, platonic love, if you will, not for the church, but for people. John 11, verse 3, Mary and Martha say to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. That's Lazarus, the one you love. John says, rather immodestly, in John 20, verse 1, he's writing it, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, talking about himself. Jesus says in John 15, 15, I have called you friends to his disciples. You know, Abraham is referred to, Abraham the father of faith, in James 2, 23, as a friend of God. That's an accolade, man. Abraham is the father of faith. He is the one to whom we all trace our faith journey back. And uh, he's a friend of God. And Jesus just disperses all that and says, You are my friends. You're my bride. And you're my friends. And that's friendship, love. Uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, featuring Arthur Brooks, uh, a very <laughs> a 
gosh, lofty thinker. I was lost most of the time, but uh, there's a picture of him, the two little, no. Here's two, here's two books he wrote, one from strength to strength, finding success, happiness, and uh, deep purpose in the second half of life. And that's bestseller, very well known. But he just recently came out with a book that he wrote with Oprah Winfrey called Build the Life You Want. And uh, this came about because Oprah read during the pandemic his, an article he writes in The Atlantic about having a meaningful life. And she, she read it assiduously. And she finally called him and said, hey, we got to do something together. we got to write a book together about all this. You know, when you're Oprah, you just call someone and say, we got to do a project. And uh, they did. They did. They wrote this book together. And uh, he coins a phrase, I mean, uh, uh, amongst all the other uh, wonderful elements of this book. He talks about real friends versus deal friends. Real friends versus deal friends. And deal friends, it sounds snarky, but it's not. It just means friends who there's some level of uh, convenience or proximity in your friendship. You know the friends you have at work? They're good people. You like them. You interact well. But if you leave that place or they leave that place, very often those friendships fade because they were deal friends. You had this one thing in common. Sometimes that happens with church friends. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with you or them. That's just the way it happens. But then there are real friends. And uh, I believe it was Aristotle. David would know this stuff. Uh, it, it's called uh, atelic, meaning it, it, it doesn't have a convenient purpose or... Uh, uh, anything convenient in the friendship, it's just that you care for one another. You, you don't work together. You may not be in the same church, your same neighborhood, any of that. But you just care for one another. And that transcends the deal, friends. And Brooks talks about the, the necessity of having one or a few of these real friends so that we don't live this impoverished life. And Jesus shows us this friendship, this friendship love, this platonic love. He says, you are my friends. McLaughlin says, for Jesus, friendship is no cheap knockoff of romantic love. For his followers, sexual love belongs in permanent, exclusive covenant marriage. But this not, must not lead to an emaciated view of friendship love. Rather, according to Jesus, Friendship love can be as great a love as any. I know when I was single, I just, you know, I'm looking for the one, the romantic love. But, but McLaughlin reminds us and Jesus shows us that that is, can be very important. But don't think that other loves are emaciated or not nourishing. They can be life-giving. Friendship love. And I pray that, you know, we'll remember that. And in this epidemic of loneliness, we'll seek to live with ties of friendship. And so Jesus models this bridegroom love, friendship love, platonic love. And then third, and this is not nearly as pronounced, mother love. Mother love, filial love. There's one primary example of this, Matthew 23, verse 37. Read it with me. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to smack you around like lion cubs. No. 
How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. It's such a tender, loving, maternal image. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? Jesus gives us a maternal image of love to associate with his love. He's saying, in a way, maternal love is a reflection of my love for you. Now, why doesn't Jesus talk to paternal love? Why doesn't he mention that? Well, that's God the Father who is uh, pronouncing that or, or showing us that. Uh, my favorite movie of all time, and one of the things David criticized me for as a preacher was I was always talking about movies, okay? I told him, David, I live in L.A., okay? <laughs> you know, I talk about movies in L.A., I talk about cockroaches in Houston, okay? It's just, you know, <laughs> you, you, you go with what you're dealt with, okay? Oy vey. But at any rate, my favorite movie of all time, do not groan. If you groan, I will be talking to you. It's not, you know, what are these Transformers things that Rhonda loves? You know, Intergalactica. Blah, 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 blah. Where's Rhonda? The Sound of Music. Who did that? Who? Yes! The Klingon Peel kids. I've always thought they had great taste. But Okay, so in The Sound of Music, have, it, it just, have any of you not seen it? Justin, he does this all the time. Okay, so... <laughs> In the movie, and any suggestion that I had a crush on Fraulein Maria is completely out of line. In the movie, Captain Von Trapp has, you know, his wife has died and he's got seven kids. Is that right? Seven? He doesn't know how. I mean, he doesn't know what to do with his kids. So he, he relies on the only thing he knows, which was he, is a, he was a naval captain. And so he runs his family like a crew on a ship. You know, he, he even has whistle signals for them, right? And, you know, and line up, do this. Blah, blah, blah. And then Fraulein Maria comes as like the eighth nanny in six weeks, you know. And uh, she, she loves the kids. She just loves the kids as a, a, a mother, you know, kind of loves the kids. And there's one, you know, climactic scene where he's really put out with the kids. He hadn't seen them in a while, but they're, they're not up to snuff. And he lines them up and, and he, he inspects them and then he sends them into the house to change. And uh, Fraulein Maria and he have it out. And at one point she just says, Captain, 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 love them, love them, love them. Just love them, love them, love them. You, you got the discipline off the charts. Just love them, love them. And I think that there's a sense in which she's really saying, show them some maternal love. The kind that a mother can give that they don't have anymore. You know, that gathers the brood under her wings. You need the lion paw, you know, to, 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 to organize, but gather them under your wings as, as, a, as a mother can do. And Jesus says, that's the love I have for you as a bridegroom, as a friend, and as a mother. And so how would I sum all this up, friends? When we live in Jesus' love, we are better able to love. We are better able to love when we live in Jesus' love. 
You know, uh, in John 13, 1, we're told, John says, when Jesus knew it was time to leave this world and go go to the Father, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. But we, we miss it if we think he loved them to the end of his time with them because the the word here is telos. He loved them to the completion, to the fulfillment, to the end. That it means the purpose for which it, it began. He loved them to the absolute end of his purpose for them. McLaughlin says, the intense self-sacrificing love, this love than which no other love is greater, is a love that Jesus has for all his followers and that he calls his followers to have for one another. Jesus' love spawns love in his disciples, not erotic desire or intoxicating romance, but deep, life-giving, sacrificial love like fireflies blinking in the dark. Jesus' disciples can be effervescent with his life-transforming love. Let me close with this thought. I will tell you, following Jesus for 40 years now, that the more I live deeply in Jesus' love, the better I love other people. And here's something that you might not expect. If I feel like I want to get back into a more vital and profound place of living in Jesus' love, I've found that I just love people. It's, it's a circle. Is there an engineering term for that, Richard? Maybe a, a calculus expression? No. Um, live in Jesus' love, and you will love people better. Love people better, and you're living in Jesus' love. It's a beautiful dynamic for which God created us in love and for love. Friends, I want to ask you, uh, this outstretched love of God, the hound of heaven, Jesus, pursuing us, God is always at work around us. God pursues a, a continuing love relationship with us that is real and personal. Have you received that yet? Have you made it your own? Have you a- 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 acknowledged that, understood that? Say, yes, Jesus, I want to live in your love. That's, that's, that's what Jesus asks of you. That's his invitation to you. Just say yes. <laughs> little bridal, groom image there. Just say yes. Here's my invitation. Next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. Uh, we're going to have the baptism filled, and we're going to invite anyone who, who, who's ready to say yes to Jesus in a life-giving, deep way that really d- doesn't have anything to do with, you know, their church or anything like that. It's do Do you accept Jesus' outstretched hands to be your bride, to be your friend, to be your uh, maternal love embodiment of God? And I want to pray now because I think there are people here today who in their heart, they know that's my next step. That's my next step. I I know. I feel the Holy Spirit prompting me right now. And so I'm going to pray with you, for you, and I I encourage you next next Sunday, uh, be baptized into Christ. Uh, be welcomed into the family of God. Uh, God. God says to Jesus when he's baptized, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, that's what God says when you're baptized. This is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And the angels rejoice. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much.
that you create us in love for love. That's really all about love. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, Lord. Help us not just love better, but live deeply in your love. In the name of Jesus Christ, help us say yes to him. Thank you, Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.